Dreamforce is here? I've never been to Dreamforce, man. You know that. <laughs> it's time you went. You're due. I've been to. Are you going? No, not this year. Okay. Uh, and it's, but well, I'm not getting sponsored to go. So that's issue one. Issue two is uh, it's gotten really big. It's really so, hard to get around. So if no one pays you to go, it's not worth it. No, it's not true. It's, it's worth it. It's just, it's for me, I've been so many times. I've, I've, I think I've been probably five or six times. Um, and each time it's gotten extremely, well, it's gotten larger and of course there's more people it's hard to get around and i'm really not great with crowds i, I just get really claustrophobic around people so how many people sh- are supposed to be at dreamforce this year i have no clue but i'm sure in the hundreds of thousands or whatever they'll basically take over that whole area of that city they'll take over uh, x number of hotels to to host sessions they'll have of course the um oh, what's the place called why did it escape me moscone moscone the, they'll take over that whole area um, they'll take over bus systems and everything. Uh, they'll even block off that street, and that that'll be be an event area as well. Now they they occupy like east and west. I must go to east and west, like all floors and areas, right? Yeah, yeah. They they pretty much take over that whole thing, and they start kind of creeping into anything in the surrounding vicinity. So I thought I'd heard that it was going to be a hundred thousand people this year. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. And I heard twenty thousand developers and of course this is these are salesforce developers so uh right take that for what it's worth <laughs> but twenty thousand developers no, well, there, there's a there's a difference in the classification of developers in that what people get certified for and what people actually are is that what you're referring to no i'm just saying you know 20 years ago now 20 years ago the guy that sat in the back office you know dragging you know massive buttons onto a vb form i mean was that a developer Yes. Okay. Well, then these are developers. <laughs> we are 20,000 of them are going to show up at Dreamforce. I'd say they're developers. I, I counted myself as one of those guys way back when, when I was just kind of hacking through my way. And no, and I, I, I really, I mean, I don't mean that that's not a derogatory. I mean, a lot of these guys are very smart and awesome developers uh, developers. Nice but, save. <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, but you know, this is, we're talking about CRM developers, enterprise CRM developers. All right. Well, not just CRM. We're we're talking mobile now, and, and Salesforce is betting that that uh, the next big app idea is going to come from from one of their developers. Uh, yeah, but it's still CRM. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's mobile or desktop or browser. I mean, it's CRM, right? And a lot of it's just very, uh, you know, obliquely related to CRM. You know, there's. Uh, well, we we mentioned. We mentioned that in the last podcast that, you know, CRM is their foot in the door, but obviously they want, they want to be more than that. They want to be the enterprise platform, which is something we discussed before. Well, my point was that a lot of these people that have built some interesting apps, the, the apps are just slightly related to CRM. They're, they're, they're really not even CRM. It's just they integrate with your CRM as a convenience type of thing. But right. they're not really, the apps themselves focus on some domain that's really not CRM itself. So. But yeah, and, and in particular with this, the developers and the, the hackathon that, that they just kind of put out, or I don't think it was them. I think it was an article from a, from a I want to say the next web is where I read that. And um, it, what are you talking about? The, the prize for the, for the hackathon this year, um, they, they usually do some kind of hackathon. And I want to say for the last two or three years, they've done the hackathon, maybe longer. Um, but it's basically, you go to Salesforce, you sit there with your computer and you Right then and there on the spot, you build this app. And um, I, this year, the focus is on mobile. Um, so you'll you'll go there, you'll sit there, and you'll b- build this new killer app. And I guess the the prize for building this killer app, which has to be voted on and gone through all that, um, is a million dollars. Why? Why? So you're saying this app is it a specific app, or are you just saying like whatever app you're building, you happen to be building? So the the title of the article was that a million dollars for the best mobile app. Oh, okay. So it's it, everyone's building their own thing. Yeah. Right. And that, so yeah, Salesforce made a big announcement today. It wasn't just, I mean, I think next was just covering someone's coverage, but yeah, they made a big announcement. There's a press release and stuff, but yeah. So the new, the reason it got so much coverage is, was because of the, the grand prize is a million dollars, right? For the, actually the first thing I saw was that it was a million dollars. There was a single prize, but then later I saw that there's also some runners up that are like 50,000, 25,000. So I guess in comparison to a million, it's um, almost nothing, but so what what does a million dollar app built 
on site at Dreamforce look like? Well, I don't think it's, I don't think it'll, the winter definitely will not be something that's built on site. It'll be something that's, it has to be a never before released application. So you think they'll come prepared with, uh, you know, everything they need to kind of kit it together and produce it or. Isn't that what that sounds like to you? And if you want to win, are you just, are you going to wait till you get there to start coding it and you have like a, what is it a day or two? That's true. I guess I definitely would kind of start now thinking about what I want to build and, and put it together. Yeah. But, but all that aside, the, the timing and, and coming prepared with, you know, with code and all that kind of stuff, what does a million dollar app, you know, look like built on the Salesforce platform? Well, so the, it, so they score it based on four, there's like four criteria or four categories. There's um, innovation, business value, what was the other one? UI. And then something about the platform, how well it uses the Salesforce platform. Um, but I would imagine it's probably would be something social or something that at least looks social, probably something with a large mobile component. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I think, the, I think probably the least important category is how well it uses the Salesforce platform. I'm, I'm actually betting on whatever actually wins that prize, having a strong chatter component to it that strong mobile t- chatter type component to it. Oh, you, you, do you consider chatter and mobile to be like similar or the same thing? I consider chatter to be almost a, a business Twitter type thing. And, you know, I, I think someone who can come up with a creative way of not only presenting chatter to the users, but also interacting with it and, you know, maybe using some of the new stuff that they come out with. And I'm not even sure if that's even available to the mobile platform yet, but all the new kind of ways of injecting, you know, small little forms or quick, quick entries into the chatter. Um, I really forgot what that was called. I think that's an interesting space. And I think, you know, Salesforce wants to be mobile. And when you're talking Salesforce as a platform and using it and, and consuming all of its services, then chatter is a big part of it. And chatter is something that they love and they, they would love to see, more involvement from the development community on. And I think, I think it's ripe for someone to come in and come be really creative with it. Yeah. I think if you had a strong chatter integration, um, that would score you a lot of points in the, in the, that last category, the platform category, even, even at the very least, if, if your app does something to, you know, help someone manage something, but the, but then the way you communicate with other people is through chatter. I think even that alone is a, is a big plus for that, for that type of category of app. Yeah, so maybe we should go to Dreamforce and enter. <laughs> I know we're giving away all the good ideas. So so social aside, is there any other thing you can think of that might be worth a million dollars? I mean, we're assuming that Salesforce is looking for something based on their platform. Um, however, Salesforce, and by platform, I mean the CRM application. But, but Salesforce really wants to be known as a platform, enterprise platform, so I, I don't see them excluding any app that has nothing to do with Salesforce CRM. It's just a really cool mobile app, even if it's a some kind of task manager or some kind of, you know, way to share video or way to share, you know, anything, um, which is what we typically think about with mobile is being on the go and sharing things while on the go. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if it's something that doesn't have to do with that chatter or social aspect. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Salesforce is pretty open-minded about that. And again, as long as it uses the platform somehow, I mean, obviously the better it uses it in terms of, you know, integration with the key features like chatter. I mean, that's going to get you more points, but, but other than that, I, th- I don't think it has to be any kind of traditional or conventional or, or strong tie with even CRM. Right. Who won last year? Uh, I don't know. I don't either. <laughs> I don't know. I think I knew at the time, but I, it wasn't something that. I, so why do you think Salesforce decided to give a, do you know what the prize was last year? Was it like 50 or a hundred thousand dollars? Something much I, smaller. Right? I want to, I want to say if I remember correctly, there were some machines involved. I think there was maybe some MacBooks being given away or something like that. Maybe an error. So why do you think Salesforce decided to do a $1 million prize for the hackathon? Well, last year their, their big thing during the conference was their mobile development tools which was basically building a standalone mobile application using their tool set and releasing it to the app store, um, whether it's Android or, or iOS. 
And I think this year it's a continuation of that, of pushing, not really pushing, but kind of, you know, continuing to drive that conversation of, of building mobile applications on their platform. Yeah. I, I mean, I get the feeling that Salesforce is still really bottle feeding this, their ecosystem. They're still having to baby it along. Um, you know, they need, they need more ISVs. They need more apps. Um, the app exchange needs to get, needs to get healthier. Um, there, and, and there are some companies I think that are doing pretty well, but they just, they need more, uh, products, more services on the app exchange that, that are big, that have, that can get some big numbers that have a lot of customers and have a lot of revenue. Um, I, I think that's probably true of the app exchange and certain tools that are meant to work with, you know, say CRM or something like that, but mobile, I, I guess, I guess from, from Salesforce perspective, I'll put myself in their shoes. I would, I would sit here and look, I mean, think about that check that, that, um, uh, Tim Cook had, had on the recent, uh, Apple news or the Apple event, you know, what was it like $13 million or something like that? What was it? Billion, billion, billion dollars paid out to developers. Now imagine, imagine if you had a platform that could de- de- deliver applications onto that, that were built on Salesforce. I think they see that they see that world of mobile and those app stores and go, and they believe that their platform can service that environment much better than anyone else. And that's what they're trying to drive for. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, obviously it's not a fair comparison to Apple because they're a consumer company, but you know, Salesforce is probably a good three orders of magnitude behind Apple in terms of their app stores. No, no, no. I don't mean, I don't mean in competing with the Apple app store. I mean, in contributing to the Apple app store. I mean, of that 13 billion percentage, you know, wouldn't it be great if 50% of that was built on Salesforce technology? Oh, you mean also connected in Salesforce? Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's a ridiculously high number, but I mean, obviously, you know, whatever Salesforce can get, they'll take. Sure. No, no, no. What, what I guess what I'm saying is, is, is if I was in their shoes and I was looking at the mobile market and I have this technology that's able to take all your skill sets of building on the platform and transfer those into compiling and building a mobile app that you can put on Apple's app store, Android's app store and sell. Those are the people I want building on my platform because they're going to use my data services. They're going to use my backend systems. They're going to use my ecosystem of current existing customers and sell to them. So thus it's growing, you know, the entire company that that's kind of what I think is attractive about this mobile platform push. Yeah. And it's interesting because there are already um, very much niche specific mobile backend platforms. And I, the names of them escape me right now. Um, but there are companies uh, that all they do is provide basically well, there, like, yeah, there's a, if you want some names, there's titanium. Um, there's Sencha. No, 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 no. That's not that you're, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. What are you uh, talking about? I'm talking about backend. Oh, you're um, talking about data service providers. Yeah. It's more, the whole cloud. it's more data, um, data services, um, things like that. I So let, let's reset them because when, when I talk about the developer tools that Salesforce has developed or at least has available, it, they're tools like Sencha, they're tools like Titanium, where you basically, you code and you build an HTML and, and JavaScript and Apex and whatever, and it compiles down to something that you can put onto the app store. That's the technology and tools that, that I think they're trying to encourage us to use the, the plus side for them is in using those tools, we're more likely to use maybe database.com or, or data.com or, or work.com or whatever other.com they have um, to kind of make our job or kind of reduce the amount of code that we're writing and leverage those systems. Okay. So one of the systems I was thinking of was, is convey and it's spelled K I N V E Y. Mm-hmm. What did they do? It's, it's basically infrastructure for mobile applications. So analytics and, or is it actually, um, it's not, it's like authentication, um, data services. It's just a lot of backend stuff mm-hmm. that a mobile application would need. Right. So I, to some degree, I think, I think, yeah, Salesforce is, is as a platform for mobile apps is, is competing with these guys who were, who are way more specific into that particular niche, 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 <clears throat> niche. I think I always say I niche. I would I'd say, say niche. niche too, but then it's probably niche. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, you know, Salesforce, they have this, 
and they're just all there. You know, Salesforce is all over the place, right? Started yeah. out as CRM. Now it's, you know, and then a long time ago, they started saying they were the platform and, and now they kind of are a fairly distant platform and they've got, you know, now they're in the, into marketing and social and, and all this other stuff. They're really, it's, they've extended the brand as they would, as, as one would say, <laughs> they kind of do a little bit of everything, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. They're not, they're not the best at anything except maybe CRM. They may be the best at CRM, but everything else there, it's not, it's not best of breed. It's just, it's convenience. You know, Hey, we can, we can choose Salesforce and get this one provider that does all these different things. Well, I think there's a certain amount of, of them just kind of grasping it at, you know, whatever the, the big hype of the day is and, and trying to make sure they have something to service those, those needs. But some of it I think is just natural evolution of the system um, for better, or for worse. I mean, I, I think the the integration with Chatter. So I'm, I kind of have a love hate relationship with Chatter because I really see the benefit of Chatter. I think it's it's actually a really good tool. But you know, with them pushing it so much, I just kind of feel like it's being rammed down my throat. But it's actually a pretty good tool that if, that maybe if they just weren't pushing it so hard, it would, it'd probably just be a great tool that everyone would use and just would would just it just be part of their workflow. And and one thing, so when you say pushing hard, that. To me, that almost means I see. I see them extending the Chatter brand. It's been over overextended. I mean, in, in a sentence or two, tell me what Chatter is. No, you're right. I mean, they they've definitely kind of been developing it and bringing it and making it something. I, and that's it's hard to explain. I mean, it's it a, is. It's an IM system, but it's also like a, a news feed, and it's kind of like RSS. Um, it, it's just all kinds of stuff. There's. There's not a whole lot in Salesforce that's not Chatter anymore, which is kind of weird. Yeah, it is. And it, it, it definitely takes up a lot of real estate <laughs> when I have to collapse that thing all the time. But well, And it takes up a lot of the mental space as well. It with, does. But I mean, the, the idea and the concept of it is a really good concept. I mean, why, why shouldn't your data be a part of that conversation of, you know, something's happening in the system and your system's notifying you and you see that thread? All of that makes sense. And it's great. And it's, especially for the CRM. Um, but now we're tacking on all, all these other things into it, you know, the ability to create tasks from within the chatter screens or, or you know, create custom screens to create other data types and other records. Um, it's starting to get really confusing about what chatter really is. And I wonder if maybe they should have just kind of split that off into a separate technology and branded it as something else and left chatter what it is. Because I think they're they're about to to take chatter into something that's unrecognizable and, and it's really hard to kind of wrap a message around. I mean... Obviously, I couldn't sit here and come up with a few sentences of what Chatter exactly is because it's kind of evolving to a point where I'm not sure I understand exactly what it is anymore. Well, I, I think they want it to succeed so bad that that's why they've, put every, they've thrown everything but the kitchen sink into Chatter. Well, I think, I think there's a certain, certain innovation involved in it of let's see if we can turn the entire CRM application into something that's more social, that's something like Facebook or Twitter where you're interacting with the data real time. You're working on these feeds. You're not actually hunting and pecking for records. You're kind of reacting to things as they happen real time, um, which I think is a great idea, but it may not translate well to everyday business. And and so I think there's a certain amount of this really big vision of what chatter could be versus the reality of, of how people actually use the system. All right. So I want to go back to the hackathon for a second, because I asked you a question, you, you didn't answer it, which is why do you think they chose to do a, a $1 million prize this year? I think to, to motivate people, to motivate, to bring out the, the develop last year at the Dreamforce conference, it was packed with developers. They had people standing outside They had people standing in, in the, any session that was developer related, even the, the developer specific keynote, it was completely packed. Um, it's getting to the point where I'm guessing they're going to have to split developer Dreamforce events separately from from their standard CRM or whatever Dreamforce events. Maybe not completely, there'll always be a developer element, but I think they're going to have to start creating new events for developers specifically because there's just so many people there now. All right. So I have a, I have a related question for you. Uh, on the street, I think with you know, whether it's, you know, the traditional Heroku developers, the Ruby guys, or the more on the enterprise side with Java developers, you know, I, 
you, you don't, you, you say Salesforce or talk about Apex or Visual Force and you get these really dirty looks. Um, traditional developers do not like, so they don't like Salesforce a whole lot. Um, now whether that's an informed opinion or not is um, maybe another story, but do you, do you get dirty looks? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you say that, well, it's kind of like Java, but it's uh, proprietary and the language has these limitations compared to Java and you know, you're just kind of stuck with this and that. And they'd say, Oh yeah, no, don't, don't even, but how, how much, I don't know. I, I, cause I kind of went through that. Some of that early on in my career with being a VB developer, you know, VB developers weren't real programmers. You guys weren't, you know, or we weren't doing the things that, that you could do in, in C plus plus or, or any other language that was out at the time. Um, we were basically just working at this higher abstracted level with these really nice, you know, little keywords and, and it just wasn't real programming. Although some of us were actually, you know, digging in and, and writing code against the actual windows 32 API. Um, it was hard. It was difficult because the data types didn't match up and we had to work around that, but we found ways and we were, we were doing some really nice stuff with it. Um, I think the accessibility of it is what got us into it. And from there we just grew and as we required more from the language, we obviously moved on to other languages. Um, so I, I, I kind of feel well, that a, that as, doesn't change the fact though, that you, when you talk to a Ruby or Java developer and you give, you explain to them the situation of the language and the tools that you have to deal with in Salesforce, that they're not interested. Well, the, yeah, they may and not I, be interested. They, they, they may not be interested. I mean, they, they obviously have a platform or, or a language that they enjoy and offers them everything that they want, or at least most of what they want. And they're able to get their work done and, and make some money doing it. Well, so I guess where I'm going towards with this is that uh, I don't think Salesforce has a lot of street cred with developers still. Um, I think that's what the Heroku acquisition was all about. I don't think it was about diversity because Heroku probably, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Heroku probably wasn't making money. And it probably doesn't make money. Um, but they spent a ton of money on it and it, it's really not integrated into Salesforce. They didn't, which is, I think a good thing. Um, I think that would have been the worst thing for them to do would have, would have been to try to fold that into force.com. They did. And it's still quite separate, but I think that was all about, you know, getting some cred with developers, some, and some cool cred, you know, some street cred with developers, but I don't, I don't think it worked that well. I don't, I just don't think it leveraged that far. I mean, yeah, more, more developers know that Salesforce owns Heroku and, the messaging slowly is starting to mention those more in the same sentence. But I think, I think this, I think this million dollar prize is all about, you know, if you can't win the hearts and minds of developers, then buy them. It's, it's almost like you're saying developers are hipsters. I mean, we're, we, we, we want to use the platforms that are underdogs that are startups. And then as soon as they get bought up by some bigger corporation that we want, we start gravitating away from them. I, I did not say that. I, I think the Heroku people well, who use the terms like, like cool. And, and, you know, they, they wanted that street cred. And I don't know that, that to me just seems kind of like a very superficial way of, of looking at these platforms that because Salesforce bought them, that it was a, it was a way to kind of seem cool. Like they were the nerdy guy trying to be cool. I think that's what it was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so, so you're in agreement. That's what you think it is. They were just trying to be cool. Absolutely. That's what it was. How did it enrich Salesforce? What's the, what's the synergy there? You know, well, there, there's no synergy with Salesforce. I, I think if we look at what they're trying to do at the time, they, they had that relationship with VMware and they were trying to do something there with some kind of virtual hosting. I think they saw that the success that Amazon was having and platform and, you know, Google apps and all those same things. And they, they knew they needed to have something to compete with those guys because if that market took off, which it has, they needed something to be in that market. And a Heroku was it. I think it was a very strategic decision. I think they did it because of what was going on in the market at the time. It had nothing to do with really trying to integrate it with Salesforce, although we all had hopes because we wanted the inverse, not that Heroku would be like force.com, but that, but that force.com would look more like Heroku. Yeah, that was the dream. And it, never materialized. And that's where my frustration disappointment is because there's what there's so many more things you can do on Heroku. You can use a lot of different languages, maybe not all of them, but you can use a lot of different ones and you, you basically 
can do all the things that you wanted that you can do with those languages. You're not restricted by these limits. You're not restricted by all of these limits of the platform. And that's kind of what we want as developers. We don't, we kind of want to be free of all these limits that we're having to deal with. The, you know, we can go back and forth on the validity of the limits and, and, you know, good developers versus bad developers and trying to protect the system against all these really bad developers are just going to write a code that loops through a hundred million records and kill the system. But at some point, for those of us that are actually trying to build some really nice stuff, some really, really cool, really proprietary, complex stuff, we need some freedom. Well, and maybe that's what that's what things like Heroku and, to a further extent, you know, a- a- AWS. That's what those are for. Yeah, but they're not because the you know looping through a hundred million records. Sometimes that's a valid case. It depends on what you're trying to do and just to make the blanket statement that you should never need to loop through a hundred million records is not necessarily always true. And if it is something you need to do, then Salesforce is not your platform. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's true. I mean, obviously if you're trying to build something on their platform, you have to live within the rules of that system because it, it is a shared environment. You know, you're not the only one on that server. You're, you're kind of competing for resources with everyone else. So so, so it's, it's traffic laws, basically, you know, you, you, you gotta wait, wait till the light turns green and all that kind of stuff before you can do something. But there are other cases where we want to, and I, I, I say we, but I, I'm really thinking about ISVs, you know, th- these companies that want to build, you know, these, these large scale enterprise focused applications that require a lot of analytics that require a lot of, um, business and workflow logic, um, and those things are kind of difficult to do in Salesforce right now because we don't have that freedom. We don't have a way around those limits. We don't have a way to say, hey, I really know what I'm doing here, but I need to be able to do X, Y, Z. Can you open it up for me? And we should mention that they have, over the past several years, added things to enable certain classes of use cases, like like batch processing or you know, record batching. So in, you know, with that technology, you actually can, in a certain way, loop through and process 100 million records. So I just want to throw that in there just so we're fair. Um, but I have a second theory behind the $1 million prize, which is, and you hit on this a little bit with the, mo, you know, just alluding to, you know, is this going to be, you think Salesforce wants a big mobile social thing. And I think they're desperate for a big success story, a big, sexy success story. That might, that, that budget's probably coming from marketing anyways. Yeah, this is a million bucks, man. And it's not like, and, and I know Salesforce is a big company, you know, what are they, four billion a year, but they're still not making money. So a million is, you know, it's not, it's not exactly pocket change, but, um, so this is important for them. This is a big deal. And I'm, I'm just trying to get it at the why of it. And I think maybe they do. They, they want to really encourage a big success story. I mean, how many just teams of two or three just kick-ass developers are there in the Bay, just in the Bay area? Who see who read this news today and said, "Hey guys, let's do it. Let's do this." You know, you're an awesome UI guy. I'm an awesome backing guy, and this guy is the business guy. You know, we'll get together and we'll just build a killer app and and win this million dollar prize. And that's what Salesforce wants. They want that killer app because that. I mean, there's some there's some great apps on the App Exchange, but I think they just I think they're I think they want to keep driving that. I think that's what this is. And and that I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. But I think they really want a big success story. No, I I, th- I think it's absolutely a good move. I think it's it's great. I think it's I think it's it it's one of those moves that makes everyone happy. I mean, if you win, you know, you obviously get a large amount of money, and that most likely that money is going to turn into some kind of seed fund into your startup, um, kind of a way to kind of encourage you and go ahead and start building and and growing that that application. Um, and I think you're right. I think Salesforce gets a gets a really nice story out of it something they can they can put up and show and encourage others to do the same awesome um anything else about the hackathon no i think we've talked that one to death yeah (laughs) uh so what was next on our list um so do.com got shut down today oh yeah they announced it right yeah they announced it and then um you had pinged me on it on IM and shortly after that, maybe 15 minutes, I got my email because I, I do have a, a do.com account that they were going to shut it down. They didn't really list any specifics about why they were shutting it down, just that they were shutting it down. So I don't know if it was because it just wasn't getting used, although 
I, I did see a lot of people out there mentioning it and how they enjoyed it and loved it. So I'm not, I'm not really sure exactly the reasoning. Maybe it just didn't fit in well with what they had or they'd planned to do something with it and just never did. Yeah, that that's a good point. That post was weird. The on on do on the blog.do.com. It almost seemed like a almost thought for a second it might have been a joke. I mean, there was no facts, no reason, just a Well, there was an FAQ, but it was mostly around the typical, well, what do I do with my data? How do I get my data? It was yeah, it was very nuts. It was very um just matter of fact. There was just yeah, it was just it was just a Thank you, screw you, and you have, you know, 60 days to get off of our yard. Was it a screw you? I mean, I mean, kind of. I don't know. I mean, I, I, know, think, they, I think they, they probably looked that, at their... They bought a company, this little mini moon or whatever it was called, that was a huge success on the Google store, um, the Google marketplace, and people loved it. Mm-hmm. And now they've run it for a couple of years, and now they're shutting it down. And they're starting to get a reputation for this. This is not the first or even second time they've done this. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know if that's much of an argument. Google does it. Apple does it. They, all these oh, big yeah, players no, do I it. Agree. Uh, but it it pisses people off, though. It, it does. Pisses because, people off when I, Google doesn't. But I it think pisses people off when Apple doesn't. It does. But I think that's because we look at these acquisitions and think, oh, hey, they're about to incorporate this into their services and, and do something great with it. But the reality is, they're probably just doing a talent acquisition. Well, that could be. Well, like when they bought Dim Dim, some people were really excited that Salesforce was going to do something great with it. But then, you know, the next thing you know, that you there's a message that okay, we're just shutting this thing down. And when they, that was a couple of years ago, and I've yet to see that functionality surface anywhere else, you know, in Salesforce. Yeah, and I th- I think it really just comes down to public perception of these acquisitions, in that. Like I said, we we think that it's going to yield something better. That that this co- this small company that did really well, this bigger company that sees sees that people love it and are using that system, and that they're going to take it and and give them the funds they need to kind of grow it and make it into something awesome. That's kind of our love affair, our vision of what's going on when these acquisitions happen. But the reality is that good developers, people that really know how to build something and build something great and build something that people want to use, are really hard to find. And so a lot of these acquisitions are bottom line, just we like the people that built this and we want to have them building our products. So, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you think do.com is, was an, a talent acquisition or do you think they actually had plans to do something with it? Oh no, they ran it for a couple of years. They, they actually, they, I don't remember if they completely brought it down, but they, they relaunched it. So at on the do.com domain. And it, I think it was a kind of a freshened look and they definitely made a run out of it. Um, so I just think it didn't work out or well at the time with, with mobile, I mean, task management was a big deal. And I, you know, Wonderlist from Wonderkinder is actually the one that I use. And it's, it's actually pretty similar to do.com in that it doesn't really have a lot of project management or anything like that. It's a simple task to do manager. You, you put your tasks in there, you mark them as completed. Maybe you have some alerts or something, but that's about it. And, and I find I really like that. Are it, they sponsoring this show? <laughs> no. no, but that doesn't, that doesn't stop me from talking about pro- good products that I use. But, um, <laughs> if you want to give us a call, no, yeah, maybe we should write them a letter. No, but, but no. what I, what I do like about them is that it is simple. I, I've used other task managers that offered pretty much everything I thought I wanted, everything I thought I needed. But what I found is that I, I typically spend more time trying to manage my tasks, trying to keep everything organized than just getting things done. And so what I find with task management is that I just need something simple. And I think do.com was very simple and in that aspect and worked well for that. And I think um, Wonderlist does the same thing. And there's a lot of people that love do.com for that reason, for the same reason that I like Wonderlist. So I'm really kind of confused about why they would shut it down or why they wouldn't either incorporate it or do something else with it. It could also just be something as simple as they want to reduce their portfolio and focus on the things that they, that they really want to focus on. You know, maybe it just didn't make the cut of something that they wanted to, to keep working on. Well, I see Salesforce as just a universe that's expanding. They keep assimilating things. So to say that they don't have focus or they don't want to focus. I mean, obviously that's not a goal of theirs. I, I think it's weird that they, I mean, why don't they try to find a sell, a a buyer instead of just shutting it down? 
Well, I think the reason they haven't tried to find someone to buy it is probably because there's nothing to buy. It, it, if they were going to sell it, I think if anybody wanted it, again, it comes down to talent, the people that made it, the people that know what to do with it. You know, those people aren't up for sale. Those are people that Salesforce wants and wants to keep. Um, so I think it, the technology aside, I don't think there's really anything there to sell. Hey, they still, they're still hiring. Do.com slash jobs. Really? Let's see, uh, they're hiring a marketing manager, a customer advocate, a senior developer, and a lead product designer. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so, so maybe maybe this new scenario is that Salesforce let them ex- you know coexist and and gave them the funds to kind of do something, and they've been struggling to grow past where they're at. But you're right; they never tried to really integrate. Do did they? No. And maybe it's because Do came to them with such a a big legacy code base that it didn't it didn't make sense to integrate. I think there was some half-assed you know App Exchange app, but um, I think that was just about it. You know what though? Maybe they've got bigger plans for that domain name because that is an awesome domain name. I mean, a short domain name is worth. I mean, just that alone is worth probably at least a million bucks, if not more. That's true. <clears throat> I, I I wouldn't admit, I wouldn't be surprised if they you know did something with that domain in the future. I'll tell you what I'll, I'll go win the hackathon and they can keep their million dollars and just give me that domain. <laughs> All you want is the domain, huh? What would you do with that domain though? Hold on to it for a while and then sell it for more. <laughs> You'd flip it. Well, rest in peace, do dot com. Yeah. I had, I had actually considered using it um, recently to try and share and, and manage my task list, but well, good thing you didn't. Well, it, it, maybe if you maybe if you would have that would have been just pushed them over the bump and they would have stayed in business. Well, no that that could have also been part of the problem is that it's actually a free service up to a point, and then you have to subscribe and and get into this pro pro edition to get additional features actually pay them for what they're doing and actually pay them. Um, which I, I did do for Wonderlist. I mean, it was, it's also the same model. It's free. You can do, you know, all your task management and everything like that with it. And then I decided that a, I wanted to support them cause I really liked the product and B, you know, I, I wanted to start using some of these more advanced features like, you know, a, attaching documents and things like that to it. All right. Now they really have to sponsor us. So that's your job is to get them <laughs> to sponsor. Um, yeah, well, hopefully everyone there can, uh, either get a job at Salesforce or I, I, I'm, you know, I'm betting that their feet. job is secure with Salesforce. I don't think any of those guys are going to lose their job. Maybe, maybe a few people that really weren't adding value from a engineering standpoint, maybe not won't keep their jobs, but I, I'm willing to bet that, that anyone who is engineering that product will, will have a, a home at Salesforce. All right. So I've got a, a curveball for you. Is this the, the surprise topic that you wouldn't it tell is, me anything about? It is. Yeah. So have you heard of this women in tech movement? Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of all these different types of movements when it comes to, to women or, or any kind of specific category. There's always, there's always some movement to get some kind of group that, that has a limited amount statistically of involvement in an industry and get kind of encourage them to, to be more involved. And I am aware of, of kind of this lack of women in technology and, and, and okay. well yeah so and i don't know if it's a specific organization or just the, if that's the name for the movement but it's it's a big deal and there's there's a lot of a, there's a lot of sub efforts and sub genres of that um and the one that i see the most often just because of my interest is the like women in programming mm-hmm. um, just <laughs> because there are so few programmers that are women and even less that show up at conferences and so that that becomes a very visual thing you know you walk into a conference and it's you know, 99.7% men at a, at a programming conference. And so there's, there's some initiatives to try to improve that ratio and, and also to try to figure out, you know, why more women aren't interested in programming in general, but also coming to conferences, you know, and there's a lot of socio or social and cultural things that go on along with that, that start, start out with when, you know, when girls are very young, um, but then there's also, I think one thing that gets a lot of the focus is how women are treated at, at conferences and how men act. And there's, you know, anytime 
that there's some, you know, someone tells, you know, somewhat off color joke or something that usually makes, you know, gets bounced around on Twitter and someone, you know, loses their job or, or whatever. So there's some hypersensitivity going on. And, and again, I think you have to take each case by case to figure out whether that's justified or not. I'm not saying that it's okay to make stupid jokes that are just, that are just offensive, but, uh, but I've seen some, I've seen some efforts that I thought to myself, okay, I see what they're trying to do and they're trying to, they're trying to make progress in this area, but I don't like the I don't like the solution. The tactic is not good. I think anytime there are events or organizations that are exclusive for a particular gender, and especially when the activity itself really doesn't have anything to do with gender, I don't, that always strikes me as like the wrong solution or the solution to no problem. So, yeah, I think, I think I see the point there. I, I think there is a certain amount of just trying to encourage these women to be in an environment where they're not, where they, they don't feel uncomfortable. And a lot of times that just means having a group of women. I mean, there's, there's all these clubs and everything for, for women only to work out because they don't want to sit there and be ogled by guys where they're trying to get in shape. So I think there's a certain amount of, you know, just trying to surround yourself by like-minded people and, and support each other and encourage each other. And so I think there's aspects of it that are really good. So, so it's interesting that, that you kind of brought this up because one, one of the things I, I actually recently saw on iTunes was a, uh, a documentary. It's called Computer Chess. And it's a documentary about a time when everyone was trying to build these really, build these systems that could actually play chess. So it had to have a, an artificial intelligence that could actually beat a person. Um, and back then that was really hard to do. Now there's chess programs, you know, up the wazoo that can basically kick your butt. But at the time, all these guys would come in with their computers and everything and their programs, and they would attempt to to play a game of chess and against a computer. And what's, what was really interesting is in the trailer, there was one woman that actually showed up to this conference, to this event. And it was like this big deal that the announcer that's staring at the camera looks at the camera and says, there's even a woman here. And he kind of points to her and she's kind of shrinking back, you know, kind of a little bit because she's really shy and nerdy and all that kind of stuff. But then there's like all these group of guys just staring at her and trying to get her attention. So I think I can see some merit in in women or at least these minorities um, in this group that's kind of all male, um, you know, trying to band together and trying to gain some confidence and support in the industry. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. Like I said, we, you know, we need to do something to make sure that women feel comfortable and they're, that the, and that they're not excluded, certainly. Um, because I think, I think there are legitimately times where women, you know, by some way are, are excluded or certainly have reason to feel excluded. And I think we need to fix that, but I don't think the right way to fix that is to have an event or activity that excludes the other gender explicitly. Yeah, I, I think to a certain degree, there there does need to be a certain amount of inclusion. Um, so so basically, the, to the point that we're all kind of comfortable working with each other, there, there's none of this taboo of, of women only or men only and all those kind of things. It, it's really about kind of getting together and work together. Um, some of this hits close to home because my wife is, she her major was MIS. She's, she was a, a developer and, and project manager and all that in her career. And she's she's got some stories to tell about you know, being excluded, being, having been put at the bottom um, simply just because she was a girl. And in one particular case, she actually had to file a complaint with HR about a client who basically was hitting on her and wouldn't leave her alone. <laughs> so I, th- there's a certain degree of truth to some of, some of this um, imbalance when it comes to male and females in the workplace. All right, so I want to propose a new segment that I call Hibernate Pain of the Week. Hibernate Pain of the Week. Yeah, Yeah, so this week I'm working on uh, some code and I've got this problem that, so it's a spring-based project and I'm using Hibernate as as the ORM layer. That's your problem. And, and, well, maybe Problem solved. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, Spring has this mechanism by which it will uh, translate the mess that is JDBC exceptions to um, a a really nice family of Spring-based data exceptions. And I've got this code that, 
you know, is, is set up to catch these spring exceptions, but I'm getting weird hibernate exceptions. And, but I'm, all I'm doing is making JDBC calls. And so I'm thinking, okay, why am, why am I getting hibernate? Because I'm making direct JDBC calls. So it turns out there's something in my spring stack. So I've got hibernate involved, but somehow or another it's hooking in and it's proxying my JDBC data source. And so any calls I make to JDBC are actually going through this hibernate proxy of the JDBC data source. And instead of hibernate letting the the standard JDBC connections or exceptions bubble up, it's changing those to these weird hibernate and they're runtime exceptions as well. They're not even they're not even um, checked exceptions. They're unchecked exceptions. And so none of none of my mapping layer is working. And so it took me forever to figure this out, like a day of debugging, stepping through to figure out what was going on. Um, fortunately, there's I could register some persistent translation exception mapper thingy that will take the Hibernate exceptions and translate them into the Spring exceptions. But that doesn't change the fact that Hibernate should not be breaking the JDBC contract. It should be throwing the standard JDBC SQL exceptions like everything else does. They're breaking the contract. Shame on them. (laughs) Segment done, I guess. I meant to respond and I completely zoned out towards the last bit. I don't know why. (laughs) Oh, man. I have... Um, Another thing, another as far as programming components here. So there's this uh, library called Unitils. And it's... It's all, all these u- little utilities that are really based around unit testing mm-hmm. with data. Right. So like if you use DB unit to do data oriented um, testing, Unitels has things that make that a little bit easier. And it's got some, um, it, it has some facilities to help you do like database migrations and it's all these little things. Right. <clears throat> and so I was using it to make DB unit easier to use. So um, it's got some annotations and things that make loading data sets in a DB unit much easy, much easier. And like, this is a pretty popular project. I mean, I've, I've used it for years now, but I haven't used it in a couple of years. It's been a while. So I'm using it today or trying to, and you know, something wasn't working. I couldn't figure it out. And it turns out that Unitils depends on a five-year-old version of DB unit. Now I had explicitly included a, actually the most recent version of DB unit, which is it's still about a year old, actually. Mm-hmm. But but Unitils needs, or it had, it it declares a dependency on you know this really really old version. So so I excluded the version I was using and and went ahead and went with what Unitils want, wanted, and it and it solved that. So I'm like, okay, this is great. In order to use Unitils, I've got to use a five year old version of DB Unit. But then I hit a problem where this really old version of DB Unit I'm using now requires a really old version of the SLF4J logging API. And, and you know, that's when I just drew the line. I'm like, okay, and there's no way. I'm not letting this continue on. I'm not going to use a five-year-old version of my logging API. So I just threw it out. So I say uh, Unitils is dead because it's effectively dead and it's unusable yeah. in any modern application. It's kind of sad because, again, a lot of people use this. It just is not maintained, I guess. Yeah, and that's the problem with some of these tools is you end up kind of in this dependency hell, this graveyard of half the tools are not maintained, yet there's a strong dependency on there because they, they you know, solve one of the problem. And of course, you don't want to rewrite, you know, or reinvent the wheel. You want to kind of leverage some of these things and save yourself some time. Um, but then you end up in this dependency. And if it's not maintained, then you end up having to support all these older versions. And at some point, you do have to kind of cut it off. Yeah, it's the it's the transitive dependencies. You know, you until depends or you know thing a depends on thing b which depends on thing c and not only that that it's frustrating because especially if you're if you're working on a system it's your development machine you find that some new tool you're deciding to use has some requirement or some dependency you upgrade to that and install that dependency but then it breaks all this other stuff you used to use yeah there's just there's just really no good way of kind of having it all kind of coexist in all these different versions and states it's just it's a mess. Yeah. And I could have, I mean, I could have gone forward and done it, but I just, I refuse to do that. I mean, at that point it's, it's pretty much dead. No one should use that on a new project. Well, what have you brought to drink today? 
Um, I'm drinking. Uh, this is a. I, I got a recipe. It's like a, a modified it though. It's a vanilla. Uh, vanilla. Milly vanilla. No, it's it's a vanilla, old fashioned. So it's got orange zest, um, orange bitters, a little bit of sugar. I put a little bit of Campari and a little bit of Cointreau, and then um, bourbon, and it's on the rocks. That's it. It's really tasty. Oh, and it's got a little bit of vanilla. Did I say that? Yeah, I think you said vanilla several times. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A lot of vanilla, a lot of citrus. Yeah. And bourbon. Yeah. It's what an- about you? So tonight I went to Argentina for my wine. It's a it's a Cabernet 2010 from a vineyard called Ernesto Catena. You ever heard of it? Catena. Yeah, they're in Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a wine called Tahuan or something like that. I don't remember. Um, I went to their website and it's, it's kind of one of those weird websites. It's very flash heavy and I couldn't really get a lot of information on, on the wine itself, but it, it, it was at a good price. Um, it was recommended on, on, uh, I actually went to market street and it was one of their recommendations. So I kind of took the recommendation. It's been pretty good. Um, it's kind of that, that kind of blackberry cherry type, um, fruity fruitiness to it. Uh, it's a, it's a dry wine. Um, mm. So it's been pretty good. I've enjoyed it. I, I'm not sure it's one of my favorites. I, I'm not sure I'll probably, you know, seek it out again, but it's it's one I've tried and I've liked, but I, I'm not so certain that I'm going to buy it again. Yeah, I've been drinking Catena for a long time. Now, I'm not sure if Ernesto Catena is part of the same, uh, I don't know if he's a spinoff of the fam of the... Let's see, Ernesto Catena, owner of Ernesto Catena Vineyards in Argentina. Yeah, he's the eldest son of Nicholas Catena. So, yeah, so he, Nicholas Catena owns Catena Zapata. That's the one that his daughter, uh, Laura, runs as well. So, I guess he spun off his own vineyard, but they're all in Argentina. They they make good, pretty good wines. At least the, the Catena wines I've had have been pretty good. You'll see the you'll see the Catena Zapata, and I'm not sure what that means, but... Hmm. I think Catena is their last name. I'm not sure what Zapata means. I know Zapato is shoe, but... I don't know what Sabata is. Um, yeah. And I, I do know that, that from the research I've done, they they actually have a really good Malbec, but I couldn't find that one. That was actually what I originally started to look for was a Malbec um, when I found the Cabernet. So I wish I'd found the Malbec because apparently that one's pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, I've had their Malbec and Cab, or at least the Catena Sabata. Yeah. yeah I, would, I would always feel comfortable buying the Catena brand. I've never had one that wasn't wasn't good. Yeah, it's not necessarily bad. It's just not one that's kind of stuck with me or wowed me so far. Um, right. The Tempranillo that I had, um, Pasquetta, I think is what it was, was the vineyard. Uh, Pasquetta del Rio or something like that. I should know since I'm claiming it to be my favorite, but I've bought two bottles so far. Um, but I think I find the Tempranillo grape itself is is one that I really enjoy. Hmm. Hey, how about a wine... Uh- a pod gem for you here. Uh, Tempranillo uh, is a play on the word temprano, which means early. So it's like the little early one. And the reason they call it that is because it ripens earlier than most other grapes. Ah, did not know that. There you go. Well, that's all I got for today. How about yep, you? me too. All right. Well, I guess it's good day, sir, then. Good day, sir.